Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 39 of Process Potables. This episode is titled Flying Fists at Flying Fish Brewery. Nice. Process Potables is happy to be a part of the Underground Philly Sports Podcast Network. You can find all things Underground Sports Philly on Twitter at Underground PHI. You can follow Process Potables on all Insta, on Instagram, I fucked it up, on all social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and Untapped Insta at Twi- Process Potables. Yeah, Insta Twitter. And you can also find Flying Fish, the brewery that we are at today, on Instagram and Twitter. They are at Flying Fish Brew. If you didn't already get it, we are at Flying Fish Brewery. It is in Somerdale, New Jersey, Magnolia, Lawnside, one of those? Something like that. White Horse Pike. Yeah, I, I, w- I would always consider this more Magnolia, but I believe the address is Somerdale. S- South Jersey things, you know, for the three people in South Jersey that probably listen to this. It's behind Cinemark. Everyone knows Cinemark. Yep. Is it? It's not Cinemark anymore, is it? It's still Cinemark. I thought it was something weird. Nah, it's still Cinemark. I, it's Cinemark. I just don't think it's Lion's Head anymore. Well, yeah, yeah it's, the, no, it's, it's not. Do you know what it's yeah. called? Because I had to look it up. I is, did they rename it after whatever the homes are that they put in? I don't know. I don't know what the homes are called. It's called the Cooperstown Plaza. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I don't. I don't know what the fuck that is. I don't know what Cooperstown is. Neither do I. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so, we're here at Flying Fish. Uh, right now, I'm drinking the, I don't know the actual names. It's, there's a fried ice cream stout and a caramel espresso porter. I think they have real names, but I don't know what they are. Uh, the caramel espresso porter might be the best coffee-ish beer that I've ever had in my entire life. It is incredible. Probably the best coffee beer I've ever had. Top 10 beer I've ever had overall. Maybe top 5. It's, it's so, so good. It's like weirdly sweet. Obviously, the caramel part with a really, really rich coffee flavor as well, but all very smooth. And this fried ice cream stout is interesting. It's very light for a stout, in my opinion. Uh, the first sip I took, I didn't get a whole ton of taste, and then I took like a longer, much you know, more filling sip from it. And I definitely got a little note of like vanilla and also got this kind of like fried batter dough kind of taste, which obviously fried ice cream, that's what they're going for. I definitely got that taste when I took more and got like a full pour, uh, you know, into my mouth. I don't, I don't know the right way to phrase that. All of it sounds weird to me. It makes me super uncomfortable. But we will have an uh, interview uh, with two of the guys here from Flying Fish. Uh, is it Lou and Kirk? Yes. That are, sounds are, right. Are, are coming on later in the episode to talk about the brewery. Uh, some of the beers, things like that, what we usually do. Uh, I'm joined by Steve. Uh, Steve got choked out as well. His, uh, his voice may not be all there, but uh, his spirit can't be beat, and hopefully the beer will loosen him up as we go, or it'll mix with, I assume, some kind of medication that you're on and make for a hell of an episode. Listen, it, not, it wasn't Ben that choked me. I was strep, so, and, I, and I ain't no bitch, so I, I, I came up. Ain't I no sh- bitch, and no cowards on work. this podcast. Buy the shirt. So Cheap plug. We're, cheers. No, we're, we're good. We're good to no go. bitch, but you might want to slide over there a little foot or two. You can't yeah. go much further, yeah, but stay I the mean, fuck away from me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're the only undefeated team in the NBA. How about that? It's very nice. That that's all you got. I want to talk about this fucking fight. All right, we're four and zero. We're undefeated in terms of games and fights. All right, I don't need I don't need notes yeah. for this. All right, let's talk about the fight. So I was there. I was at the game. That's right. I was trying like hell to find somebody to go with me to this game. Nobody seemed to want to. I then tried to sell the tickets. Nobody wanted to buy them. Your boy asked me if he could buy one. 
Oh, really? And I was like, uh, I kind of want to either sell the pair or not sell them at all. And uh, he was like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of chilling. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm just going to go. So I went, and holy shit, thank God I went to that game. Now, did you happen to see the replay of it at all or I like, mean, like, or rewatch the game at all? I didn't rewatch the game, but what I'll tell you is that basically after that, I, I didn't give a fuck about the game. I spent like 30 minutes <laughs> yeah. on my phone. Obviously, had to go deep in on, on Twitter, and, and Sixers Twitter just went off, as we know. I mean, like for the first maybe 15 minutes of it, like them sorting it out, just trying to establish what was going on. Like that whole time, you know, and watching Embiid go crazy, like my eyes were just on him. My seats are right across from the Sixers bench. So I had a great viewpoint of him and Mike beefing it up and yeah. him shadow boxing all over the place and then him going through the tunnel. So, like, I'm losing my mind at this point. And mind you, I didn't even have a drink at this game. Like, I was, I was stone cold sober for this one. See, and, uh, the, the reason why I ask is because I don't give a shit about the game either. But it was one of, And I know this happened before with the game. It was just awkward because, you know, they were, you know, Sixers were, you know, bringing the ball up and Allah and, um, and, and Zoo, they were like, oh, and something's breaking. There's a fight down. And it's like, well, shut a fight. Like, come on. Like, like they, they, they yeah, and then I, they replayed it. I have not, I I not like, heard what? anybody. What? I haven't heard Zoom off. I haven't heard uh, Tom McGinnis. I didn't hear either of the calls about it at all. The Sixers do like a, uh, like, it's called like the Sixers Rewind. It's like a 20 minute podcast they do like after every game mm-hmm. and i never listened to it before until like tuesday or maybe wednesday i listened to it uh like the recap of the atlanta game so i'll probably go back and find the one for this one because hopefully they'll have one of the two either the tv and or the radio call regarding the fight i mean I don't, since it's the Sixers official one i don't know how much they'll yeah, really want to really talk, talk about, about it or it, not yeah so you being at home watching on TV, like what was what was the feeling right away? Like what was the first emotion? I guess my initial reaction was Cat started it, and B didn't really like, really do anything, and then just suddenly you see Simmons on top of Cat, like, and I'm like, is he choking him out? Like I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then eventually they showed the replays and everything, and and then I go right to Twitter to see everyone's reaction. Already a lot of gifts and memes and things that I look for, but the more I watch it, I'm like, this wasn't even really a fight. Like, no, they're they're all oh, uh, you know, and beat swung at them. I'm like, they were like locked up, like they were you know like clutching each other. Like it wasn't much of a fight. And and then when they yeah, Towns s- threw one right and he missed. Yeah, and then they were just wrapped up. Yeah, and that was pretty much the end of it. You know, because he's been a, a pussy his entire life. His that, entire life. Th- that was the extent pussy. <laughs> that the one punch he threw, he missed. And I didn't see anyone reference this, but, you know, in the when we first started watching basketball, right, that was towards the end of, like, Rodman's career. We saw Malice through the palace. Like, we saw real fights in the NBA back in the day. And I'm like, you know, this is a no fight. But I never saw anyone tap another player out on an NBA court. Like, that was... Now, how quick, like, watching it on TV, like, how quick were you able to figure out? Like, it took me a while to even hear or see the Ben Simmons involvement in it. Like, I only saw the clutter. I only saw Embiid. And then, like, you know, dozens of minutes later on Twitter, everyone's like, yo, Ben tapped out Carl Anthony Towns. And I'm like, what the fuck are they talking about? Yeah, and it's weird because I, I, by chance and because, you know, looking at the replay and then looking on my phone – 
the, I saw Simmons like right away, and I think because they didn't initially have it on a camera, that was like the first thing that they showed was like Simmons on top of Cat. So okay. it was kind of weird, and then and then they showed the initial altercation that began. Do you, do you think it was just a choke, or uh, somebody dubbed over Jr. and Jerry King Lawler and uh, had, had the John Cena STF call? I'm the <laughs> I'm the one person that is just sick of the Jr. call and everything. What? Dude. The, the, the ki- they use the King of the Ring sample for everything. Come on, there's so many great that's calls. that's all you need. Ah, come on. Dude, if you want it now, done better, then you fucking do it. If not, no, you don't get to complain okay. about now it. Now, you see, it. an STF is a step over face lock. Uh, a step over toe hold face lock, STF. Never knew that. Yeah, there you go. Because you, you, you wrap the leg, which I don't think he wrapped the leg, but he had the full face lock. Yeah, we didn't wrap the leg because Towns was kicking his feet because right. he was suffocating right but i mean i turned on the game right at the the end of the skirmish so i i, I saw that you know because i think they're, they're just trying to get that wednesday night war rating you know they're up against the world series they're trying to you know pull the ratings in and they they yeah. did way more action on that that little fight than uh <laughs> than anything else that was going on wednesday nights this past week but uh ben simmons he locked that in and he wasn't you know letting yeah. go to the referee said uh that he gave up what uh? What match is that call from? What 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 was an I quit match that John Cena won with an STF? Was it Orton? Uh, I believe it was Batista. Oh, okay, yeah, I couldn't tell the, the voice. The voice of uh, I quit he, sounded like either Orton or Batista. He quit, and then he, I believe, gave him the S the uh, the the attitude adjustment off of uh, like a car through the stage or some shit like that. I, I don't even remember because that was kind of you know, like all, the. All I know is, and, and they did this a year or two ago. Uh, next time at, at a home game when Embiid comes out, they need to play the Triple H theme song again. <laughs> I mean, you're the one who went on record before this Who's podcast is even a thing, Steve. Steven. And he said that Joel Embiid will be the star of WrestleMania 45. And we're coming up on 36 this year. It's nine years. Exactly. There's plenty He'll be of time. retired by then. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. He'll need that McMoney. Yeah. So. As we talk about Ben Simmons and this whole thing, he was deemed a peacemaker. You can find uh, peacemaker shirts at Underground Sports PHI, like I mentioned. They're hot on design design tree. Cheap plug. Cheap plug. All the shirts. Do you agree with the Ben Simmons peacemaker thing? This seems to be the more debatable thing going on right now, whether or not it's legitimate that he was a peacemaker or was he really choking this dude out? See, I think on the surface, like, obviously he wasn't. But, and I didn't really know about this going uh, before the game, that him and Kat are buddies. They, they play video games. I'm thinking what happened was he just got on top of him and, if anything, like maybe tried to yell in his ear, like, hey, man, cut it out. And that was just, you know, I really don't think he tried to choke him. But, I mean, he did. Now, do you, do you, think he, you think he's yelling at me or you think maybe he gave him a nice sensual whisper in the ear, like, calm down, baby, daddy's got you. I mean, yeah, that's actually more plausible than I think about it. So, I mean, and, then, and, and again, then, he's been a pussy his entire life. And, so, then, I mean. and then Towns resisted, and then Ben was like, "All right, we gotta go to sleep, motherfucker." Yeah. Oh, and did you? Um, I don't know if you were getting to this, but did, I think it was on um, NBA Countdown or whatever when they asked Jimmy uh, Butler about it. No, I didn't no, see that. he was just like, he's like, oh. I knew they were going to drag my name into it, and, and it was going to be Embiid. He's like, I, I knew something was going to come out from this game, but not this. But but he basically says, oh, I, I love it, you know? Just- yeah. Well, I know on one of Embiid's Instagram posts, Jimmy commented, and he said, you really had to drag me. Thanks for dragging me in. Yeah. 
So there, there was a whole thing with that. So my question to you, basically, I almost called in the WIP. I was so tempted because <laughs> I just I wanted to shut all these boomers the fuck up, but I realized it wasn't worth it. And I was probably just going to get like hung up on or maybe not even get through. But people were calling in and saying that Embiid's not allowed to talk trash until he wins a championship. That he needs to control his emotions and all these things. And my thoughts, very quickly, are, number one, his entire bit, his entire gimmick of talking trash, of going on social media, of getting in people's heads, has it, has it ever once, in your opinion, impacted his play on the court and how good he is? Yes no. or no? no? No. The answer is no. Absolutely not. If anything, it's who he is and that's why he's so good. See, what you need to do is next time when you make that call, you have to preface it. Hey, I'm, I'm Dan. I'm from Thetford. Um, Dan on the cell. I'm a, yeah, Dan on the cell. Yes. Huge, I'm a huge, biggest Buddy Ryan fan. I also have to have Smooth my phone on speaker that. so that they I can start I can have the echo and then they can You've tell me to take it You've been a season ticket holder for 43 years. It feels like it. You know, You've and, checked off and all the boxes of being the worst phone caller or radio show exactly. of all time. <laughs> And but to them, that's the best. You're part of dirty, and you'd still hit him with the first time, long time, despite that oh, it's yeah, not your first time. One. First time, it long might be time, a long yeah. time. It won't be the first time. <laughs> but but listen, so it, it it you we agree that it has never impacted his ability on the court or his play on the court, no. right? You would never say, oh, there was this game where he was too emotional and he didn't show up. Like that's not a thing of his. Like, no injury, sure. Fatigue, conditioning, sure. Diarrhea, sure, all those things. None of them are emotional or have to do with his trash talk or anything. If anything, this gives him the advantage. And obviously, Carl Anthony Towns couldn't handle it. And one, he was getting his ass busted on both ends of the floor by Joel Embiid again. Contrary to what anybody thinks, I saw people on Twitter talking that up to that point that they had similar stat lines. One, they didn't. I think Embiid was like six points ahead of him. Two, like Towns wasn't getting his points going against Embiid. He was spotting up at the top of the arc and hit a couple of threes. Embiid was down there on the block busting his ass and just just taking him to school. Like, that's why this happened. This didn't happen from trash talk. This this didn't happen from social media. This happened from a guy who realized that he was getting fucking owned and said, I've had enough. I can't beat him playing basketball. I'm going to try and beat his ass. And... If this is what happens because Embiid's dominating somebody, then I'm fine with that. And the point that I was considering making on sports radio that I knew wouldn't come across that I will make here now, and I think hopefully people will appreciate, is if you go through the other 29 teams in the league, like Embiid's our best player, we know that. Mm -hmm. We also built this team with the condition of knowing that there will be games he doesn't play in. That's not the ideal scenario, but we know that's a reality. But hear me out on this. If every single game for the rest of the year and through the playoffs, at some point, the other team's best player and Joel Embiid got kicked out of the game, I guarantee you against all 29 other teams that we are at more of an advantage at that point than we are in a normal game. Like, look, like go through the teams that we might expect to see in the finals. Have our team minus Embiid face the Lakers without either LeBron or AD. Oh, yeah. It's a fucking ass-whooping. Have us face the Clippers without Kawhi or Paul George without Joel Embiid. It's an ass-whooping. Have us face the Celtics without Kemba Walker. Have us face the Nets without Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving. We're going to beat that ass. Yeah. So if you're telling me that, like, oh, Joel can't afford to get kicked out of these games and we need him on the – bullshit. 
I honestly don't think that we do. I think if you told me that if I have to lose Joel Embiid to lose the other team's best player, I'll do it every night. Because I still have Horford and Simmons and Richardson mm-hmm. and Tobias and Matisse. Like, no other team can, can lose their best player like we can. Yeah. And, and that's not to say that Embiid isn't the best player on the team. He obviously is. Want him to play. Love him. Favorite guy. King of the city. All those things. But just looking at it in a basketball sense... I'll take that every time. And it helps to have where you have, like, Uncle Al or Dad Al, right, who's like, all right, this is stupid, you know. It's good to have that on the court, too, to kind of balance, you know. Oh, did you see the picture of him just watching the entire yeah. scrum? Like, he wasn't I, mad. I got time for this. He, he was wasn't mad. He was just disappointed. He was just disappointed. <laughs> Which is always, always worse. Yeah. So I have no problem with it. So it came out that. Towns and Embiid both get two games and Ben gets none. I thought it would be three, and I think that I was being optimistic with three. And my thought was that it was either going to be three and three or Towns might get four just because he clearly threw a punch. Uh, I think that – well, here, I'll ask you this before I say my answer. Do you think that him and Towns should have gotten the equal number of games suspended, Embiid and Towns? Do you think that Embiid's social media rant influenced it? And do you think that Ben – should have gotten none, or should he have gotten a game or two? So I think, I think two games is fair. When everyone was throwing out their their guesses out on Twitter, everyone said three, four, five, which I thought was too much. Especially five was way too much. Yeah, way too much, especially when one punch was thrown and it didn't land. And I think if this the whole social media stuff didn't happen, they may have only gotten one. Now I thought Ben. I thought maybe he would get a fine, but he didn't even get that. So I was I was pretty surprised with two games. The other thing, too, is like, I don't want to say it works our advantage, but, you know, load management is always going to be a thing with MB. League-mandated load management. So That's all it is. he'll be off for two games before he goes up against Gobert and uh, Jokic. Exactly so, what I wanted I to mean, get to. So, yeah, looking at this, this upcoming four-game Western road trip that everyone's been talking about. So the two games that Embiid's going to miss – are against the Trailblazers and the Phoenix Suns. So he gets the weekend off. He gets some rest. He gets to come back. So he'll basically have an entire week off because we played two nights ago on Wednesday, and he'll be able to play again next Wednesday in Utah against Gobert. And then two days later, he plays against Jokic, who Jalil Okafor absolutely fucking torched last night. Yeah. Uh, 26 26 points, I think, 24 or 26. Against against Jokic and just like pick and roll driving right by him. Can we please end the Jokic and Bead debate? It's over. It's so over. There is no way that Okafor never put up those kind of numbers against Embiid. Cause oh no! With, with with the bully ball and uh, I, I guess Pat- he'd foul out in, in the first quarter against oh, Embiid God, yeah. if he had to play starter minutes against him at the rate Embiid's getting guys. And I I mean not that I've really watched Utah Jazz, but. Uh, I mean, looking at uh, pictures of Jokic going into the season, like he he looks a little chonk, man. And a little, Embiid. He was a little chonk last year. Dude is full blown. And Embiid looked great. So I, and hey, may, maybe Boston that ass. Yep. There's two other people I want to talk about from this game, and then if you have any other, other takeaways from this game, but the Sixers were in control the entire time. That's what the whole fight stemmed from. They were comfortably up 20. Six, the, the Wolves had a little bit of a run. I think it got within like eight, somewhere in late third or early fourth, and I even was like, come on, are we really going to do yeah. this? Are we really going to let them back in? And they opened it right back up to 20-something, and it was always, it was always, uh, it was always a lock. 
First is Robert Covington. So I usually only like to talk about other podcasts in a positive way on this, and I usually don't like to acknowledge the only podcast that refuses to acknowledge there are other podcasts. But I'm sure you saw Uh-oh. the little Eskin tweet rant about Covington yep. and how mad people got. And listen, I mean, I had people in my DMs coming after me for saying things about this, and like, you know, full disclosure, like we're day one Ricky guys, like. Original lottery party. We were out there. We like almost never missed a single event. Been to every lottery party. Like like full disclosure. Like it's it's where a lot of this fandom comes from. Like we grew up playing basketball together, but we really came back around because of that. Like exactly. that that's the reality. Yeah, that's fair. So there's plenty of things that we agree with agree with with them. You know, we're regular listeners and everything like that. But like we gotta stop this Covington shit. And my thing, there are two things that I had an issue with for people familiar with this situation. I mean, basically, the the meat of that tweet was it was about the fact that we stand so hard for Matisse Thibel, and rightfully so, because the kid's fucking incredible, and he's the other person I want to talk about, basically. But basically said, imagine, you know, Matisse's defense with somebody that can shoot, like, 38% from three. And he went on to, one, say that it wasn't a knock on Matisse Thibel, which it literally is. Yeah. Whether you mean it to be or not. Like, I don't think that Spike doesn't like Matisse Thibel, but clearly was taking a shot at him in comparison to Robert Covington. And, two, is like, did you watch Covington in this game? He was awful. He was, yeah, he had a really bad game. And all of a sudden, we're changing the narrative because we want to seem like we're bigger fans of him because he's not here anymore. Dude, his on-ball defense was always an issue. It was always an issue. And you can say that maybe like he should have never been put in those positions. He was never built to be like the guy who should defend the other team's best player. He was forced into that role because we didn't have anybody else. Fine. That's fair. But that doesn't make him good at it. Yeah, and he's and that's, bad at and it. That's why and he, he tried was, his best, and that's why he was great at things like deflections. Because a lot of times, it's because someone went right, right by him and he swatted a ball away or made that like little block when someone's going for a layup. Yeah, or here a and dunk. there, but like, then that's... all the other times they went by him, they fucking scored, which is why yeah. consistently slasher guards dropped fifty plus on us. So, like, can we can we just get past this? Like, we were Robert Covington fans. We are Robert. Like, I'm still a Robert Covington fan. Like, I yes. cheered for him the other night when they announced him, but. I sure as hell wasn't cheering for any of his shots to go in. And for the record, I don't think any of them did. Yeah. He, he shot he one was, that completely missed the rim and went off the backboard. I, I don't think we have it here, but I think he was like a, a, a minus like 13 oh, I or have something. It. He was a minus 23. He had seven oh points. Oh, my God. He shot one of four from three, two of seven from the field in 26 minutes. No assists, three boards. Like, what? what is that stat line? He's not, he's not a starter on a championship team. No. He's not. And I think being on a team with Ben Simmons and Bede versus <laughs> Towns and Wiggins being your two best guys, I mean, he's, he's going to thrive when there's a better roster around him. For and, sure. And, and that's why, let's be honest, when we did trade him and Dario for Jimmy Butler, like, it sucked, but it's like, okay, like, you make that trade again and again. Like. And on Matisse... For, for any kind of comparison you want to make, obviously the shot's not completely there, but Brett Brown has praised him for being willing to shoot, and I think to this point in the season, he is shooting just shy of 27%. He averages a make on 3.8 attempts. I mean, we knew it was going to be rough. Yeah. He's shooting it, which is good because we've seen guys that refuse to shoot it, and, you know, he keeps working on it. Maybe it gets there, but his defense has been insane, and I think you'll take, like, low. if he can just get that to low 30s, 
like he's absolutely we'll he's absolutely a steal this year and going forward you hope it gets better so far right now he leads the nba in total steals 12 and deflections 21 his per 36 numbers are five steals two and a half blocks and 8.7 deflections that's fucking insane yeah I, and I, a guy who's coming off the bench and playing like 22 minutes a game yeah what, what people have been wanting but no one's been really wanting to say is ever since we traded covington Everyone's been, you know, wanting, you know, another Covington S player again, which I mean, any team would benefit from. I just think they don't have as much in common as people think. I agree. And it's just, yeah, they, they make great play, like the deflections, the steals, but that's all it is. Yeah, but that's it. That's it. That's it. In the Wolves game especially, compared to the other ones, it seemed like they were really trying to get Matisse more involved in the offense. They did a lot, especially once Embiid went out. They did a lot when he was out there with a majority of the stars where they would have him come from the corner or from like the, the angle at the top and yeah. run around a screen and dribble right through the paint. Sometimes he got to them that. Sometimes he kicked it out. Like He did a lot of different things, which was cool to see. Like It wasn't just him standing there waiting to shoot threes. Like They're trying to find other ways to get him involved. So that was really great to see. And uh, if you don't have anything else on, on Thibel. You know, the other thing uh, with, with Thibel I just kind of want to mention, and this might not make sense, but everyone wants to make the Covington comparison. I see just a, a dash of TJ in him because I think some of the hustle plays he's made is reminiscent of TJ. Like, And I don't know if it was the – I think it was a preseason game. Again, at, at the end of the half, he stole an inbound ball and just went right up. And to me, like, I thought I saw TJ for a second. Like, those types of, like, you know, hustle plays. and just, I get like, what you're saying. A, I think the difference. a little bit. You know. I, 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 the effort level I'll give you. I mean, there's a lot of guys that play with effort. The difference, I think, between Matisse and TJ is TJ, any, TJ anytime he did anything like that, it was purely hustle. Matisse, yes. there's, a, there's a different level where it's instinct and it's defensive IQ. And not to knock TJ, but I don't know that he had the instinct or the, necessarily the IQ no, like Matisse fair. does. And that's where I think more of his success stems from and also his athleticism, which is insane. But like TJ was just pure grit, pure hustle. Like Matisse, I mean, he's working hard, but it's so much more natural for him. Like he's not getting these because he's busting his ass. He's getting them because he anticipates where the ball yeah. goes because his wingspan is absurd and he can get there like – it's the same, but it's different, you know? Yeah. But I get what you're it's, saying. It's just really unfortunate for the people who said, oh, Matisse isn't going to be good because he played at zone defense at Washington for well, two years. So. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think a lot of people were saying he wouldn't be good. I think a lot of people were saying that those numbers were skewed, which to a degree they were, but clearly so far yeah. it, it's translating in ways that nobody projected it, yeah. to, it to do so. Very so well. I, don't, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I, I get what your point is there. The, uh, the last thing from this game real quick, because it's just my brand, Furkan Korkmaz, what a game, what a guy, what a great player. I'm glad he had this game because I I don't want to say I was, was going to shit on him coming on today, but he just he didn't look good in those first three games, man. He was he, fine, but he scored 17 in this one. Oh, yeah, this one he was great. The cork has officially been popped. He's I'm a so, bomber. He's a bomber, baby. He's growing into a bomber. Listen, like... This is this is the beauty of how good this team is, is you can allow him this time to really, like, you're going to find out if playing time will make him better or not yeah. very quickly. And so far, I think you can see through four games, he, I think he's gotten better every game. It, oh, yeah. hasn't, it hasn't been even. It's, like, really, really slow. Oh, shit, this was a great game. We'll see how it carries. But, like, 
when he's out there, it's not like they're getting beat, like, you know, by, like, a 10-point differential. Like, he's not the reason that things are going wrong. He may not be the reason most of the time that anything is going right. But, like, if anything, he's out there just towing the line. And then in this game, he was a, a much-needed surge of offense, I think. I just want to know, did, did Brett Brown give him some sort of, like, ultimatum or something? Because... <laughs> Last year he didn't sign that extension. Then, then he requested a trade, and well, and they, then, didn't, they didn't offer him the extension. Or they okay, that's right. I'm sorry, the they didn't offer, didn't offer him. Offer, the, and, didn't pick up his options. And then I remember reading that he was going back to Europe. To suddenly we resign him. So I'm just, I'm sure there's an interesting conversation we won't know about. But it's, I mean, I, I think it's just, I think the Sixers obviously were looking at options. They were trying to fill the team with more veterans and and cheap contracts and stuff. And then at, at some point. You know, you don't land all the guys you expect. You know, I think a lot of us were looking at guys like Wes Matthews yeah. and stuff like that to be like an, a, a three-point shooter. And, you know, when those guys – Kyle Korver, when those guys go to other teams, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, now where do we go? You know, Furcon wasn't picked up by another team. He does know your system. Yeah. You do know there's promise there. It's like, all right, well, now we're at the point where, you know, we didn't pick up the option because we're, then we're locked into it. But now we have the flexibility to bring him back. So – I don't think there's anything wrong with it. He's an easy contract to move or dump if, if you don't like it. But, like, it's just such an easy shot for people. And so far, like, yeah. like I, I think other than that Wolves game, James Ennis has been pretty bad. And yeah. I don't even think he was great in that game except for the offensive rebound. Yeah, he was a which, great rebound. Which was crazy. He had, uh, I have, he had 11 rebounds. I think five of them were offensive. Five offensive rebounds off the bench, 11 rebounds. So he was plus 18. So that was a great game for him. But until then, like, I think you easily could have thrown all your jabs and, and boos and stuff at him just as much, if not more, than Furkan Korkmaz. Oh, yeah. Just yes. to be clear. I've seen but, it on Twitter. But it's also Jonathan, Jonathan Simmons comps. But, but, it, but it's also my brand to, to be positive on, on Korkmaz. So it is what it is. So we haven't done a pod since right before the opener in Boston. We've won every game. I don't think we need to go back and talk about every game, but – you know, I have some numbers I want to throw at you, but I kind of want to just first get, you know, your takeaways overall through the first four games. What have you seen that you like? What have you seen that concerns you? And, you know, anything in particular that's just stuck out to you? It's a combination of a concern, but also something encouraging. The, the first four games, we, we haven't been very good with ball handling and a lot of turnovers, but at the same time, when we always, when we do turn over the ball, we don't always give up those points easily as well, which I think ex, um, speaks to how great this defense already is. And when it comes to new teams, new players being thrown in, it, things like you know ball handling, turnovers that's that's always an issue with uh, guys just getting used to playing with each other. So I think what's going to happen is as they get more comfortable and you know, develop a rapport and everything, you'll see less turnovers and they're going to give up even less points per game from just not turning the ball over. But at the same time, if, if they're not letting the other team score on turnover possessions, like, I mean, that to me, that speaks volumes. Yeah, I know the Wolves game in particular, I don't know the exact numbers, but I remember seeing that we were, I think we were pretty even in turnovers, if not like exactly yeah. even. But I think they scored like eight points off those and we scored like 20 plus yeah so like that's exactly what you're talking about which is true uh when you have guys like josh richardson and ben simmons and matisse theibel like that are chasing guys down that are generating turnovers off of the turnovers that we're committing like that's a very real thing so i'm I'm hoping that you'll lead me into some of the numbers i've pulled up and you just did so a lot of people are concerned with the turnovers we are fourth in turnover percentage so that's a very real concern but what i think a lot of not to try and big time anybody or whatever but a lot of more casual fans don't understand is pace 
Yeah. The Sixers are fourth in the NBA in pace. That's basically how many possessions, or like, 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 you know, how fast they play the game, like how many possessions they're going to have in a 48-minute game. So they're fourth in the NBA in basically how many possessions they are expected to have in a 48-minute game. The more you have the ball, the more you are going to turn it over. The rate of play of this team dictates that. So, yes, there is room for improvement there, but they're always going to be up there if they play the way that they do. And to your point exactly, what's the best way that you overcome that? Because you don't slow down your team. This is a transition team. They generate turnovers. We lack shooting. They're going to have to get out in transition. How do you do it? You generate more turnovers on the other team. You play good transition defense, exactly what you said. So I think that... The turnover thing is a concern, absolutely, but people are making it out to be a bigger deal than it is, or some people that are making it a big deal don't understand exactly why it happens, and that some level of it you are going to have to accept and is never going to change, even if they theoretically are playing close to perfect. Yeah, and it also seems like uh, the – I don't know if it's the bulk of the turnovers, but I know a good chunk of them is like Matisse. You know, he seems to have a lot of turnovers. But, again, I think, you know – Brett's smart enough to know this guy, kid's a rookie, and he he's going to have to play through mistakes. And sometimes I've seen him turn the ball over. It's a little frustrating, but then, you know, if he's back on defense making another turnover, I, I mean, he, he has ways of making up, so to speak. Um, I know the other thing, too, is Embiid, when he gets double teamed, a lot of time turns the ball over as well, but... I think yeah. these are a lot of things as the season goes on. They're, they're All the things. starters, other than Horford, have a decent amount of turnovers. And Matisse is the only bench guy that's pretty much even with them, even though he's still coming off the bench. Yeah. So you're right. But he's young. He's a rookie. You know that's going to happen. And, again, the same thing I kind of said with Korkmaz. Like, that's a great thing about this team is you have the room to let these guys have that leash, to let them learn. You're hoping if, they, if they're dealing with that now, they improve, they learn from it. All of this is set up to be prepared for May and June. Exactly. So that's what you're building toward. Anything else, positives, negatives, takeaways, or anything to this point? Toby's looked pretty good so far. Now, I know the first game against the Celtics, it seemed like everyone shot the ball poorly, but we still beat the Celtics. In the, not last night's game, but uh, the game against the, um, Hawks. Yeah, against the Hawks, he just like took over that third quarter, which was great to see. I know in the last pod I talked about, one of my concerns was if Toby doesn't produce or isn't shooting well, that's something that could come up. But I, I don't see that as a problem right now. Yeah, it seems like watching him that it seems like he's shooting worse than he is. Like right now he's shooting just shy of 35% from three. It's not – you want that to be higher, but he's not – you know, 35 percent's like league average. Yeah. So, you know, the first four games beginning of the season, you hope that he can improve on that. I think we talked over the summer. I think last year once joining this team, he was shooting like maybe 31-ish. Yeah. So, obviously, there's been some improvement there. And in a role where he's being asked to shoot that shot more, you know, the number going up on being asked to do it more is a good thing to see because you would think that if he's struggling with it and he's being asked to do it more that there's also possible regression even further. So you hope that comes around. I think it's come and gone. I think he's had times where he's been too passive, but then there have been those moments, like you said, in that third quarter that it seems like he kind of takes it over. So I think that that's good. 
we all knew that the offense was going to take a long time to start. I'm not going to put any of that blame on any single player, but I do want to get later in the episode, I do want to get into some of Tobias and Ben's uh, shot selection so far in that, but I don't want to get into that now. As a team, the offense, as you talked about Tobias, and we're talking about three-point shooting a little bit, they're 24th in three-point percentage as a team So in the NBA so far. So it's not great, but again, we talk about how they're making up for it, obviously, with the defense. So here's what I love. Opponent three-point percentage is their eighth, under 32%. Opponent field goal percentage is their tenth, just under 43%. And this is the one that worries me because this is the one that I think is the reason we've won two close games, and this isn't going to stay forever. Opposing free throw percentage, we're second, under 65% team shooting free throws against us. That's not going to stick. Yeah. Uh, That probably helps that you face, like, Detroit with Andre Drummond and no Blake Griffin. Yeah, that's the one that concerns me. I went over pace and turnovers and everything. Uh, we talked about Matisse and this defense. Here's some of the defensive stats. And overall, the uh, the Sixers are number one in net rating adjusted and defensive rating adjusted. So that is net rating and defensive rating, but it's adjusted based on your opponents and your schedule. So okay. it's taking into account who you play. So I, I put more value in that than just overall net rating because if you lead the league in net rating but you've played four shit teams, are, how, how, how skewed is that number? So this adjusts for that. So they're number one regardless of who they played. Like taking into consideration who they played good or bad, they're number one in net overall net rating and defensive net rating, which considering I'm pretty sure there's something like 20th in offense, Yeah, that's how good the defense is, that they're number one overall when they're 20th in offense and first in defense. That just shows that the defense is – like his, it's it might be historic. Yeah, it really might be historic. I think we said it a little tongue in cheek in the off season, but so far, it's a real thing. I don't think it's only going to be historic, but it, it's interesting because when it comes to you know, uh, this was a big off season where people said, "Oh, are we going to keep Jimmy and Toby? Are we, um, you know, things like that?" And we have such a big team. A lot of the criticism, people were like, "Oh, well, they're too they're too big." They don't have guys fast enough when other teams have smaller lineups. They're not going to be able to play. And I could be wrong, and maybe I'm the only person that has this view. Maybe not. But I thought, you know, they're going to be so good defensively that maybe that changes the course of how play is in the league. You know, they always talk about, like, they love to say in the NFL, you know, that they're a copycat league, you know, blah, 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 blah. But maybe, you know, this, this could work out so well that, you know, maybe teams start to look at us. You know, we need bigger guys. We need more. Well, defensive. that that already happened in the NBA. It just yeah. happened with Golden State, positionless basketball, the yeah. death lineup. Like that—that's exactly what just happened with them. And and basically, a lot of teams tried to copycat that, and so far, few have had success. Right. And now the Sixers said, "Well, fuck it. We can't get the people to do that. Exactly. So we're just going to be bigger than you." It's the Chip Kelly theory. Yeah. I said they're actually doing it right. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah, having bigger people beating up little people works much better in basketball. Yeah, it didn't football, work so great. So. It didn't work so great in football yeah. because you think that they're all bigger, but everyone in there is fucking big. It's not that it's not that different. Yeah, and everyone's saying no why Al Horford can't play stretch four. It's like well, maybe he doesn't have to be stretched for. Maybe he can be like Tyrone Hill, like back in the like you know going don't back. Don't insult Al bit. Horford by comparing him to Tyrone Hill. I just don't being do a, it. a traditional power forward. Yeah, I mean, he's played power forward before. It's not like we all of yeah, a sudden are taking a guy who's been a center his whole career and asking him to be a power forward. He's yeah. also playing, I'd say, at least half his minutes, if not more, at center because he's not out there with Embiid all the time. He's only out there with right. Embiid for like three of Embiid's shifts. But I just four-minute windows. I, I think this could be historic in a sense of 
not just you know how many points they give up, but you know that this could you know uh, change the traje trajectory of how the league's going as far as. Yeah, it's possible. I think the only tough thing about that is, I mean, how many how many guys are available to do this? Like the Sixers kind of rounded up all these big guys. There's not that many big guys that can play at the level of the guys the Sixers have. Like, where are you going to find these guys? Yeah. So I, I mean, they, they kind of. I mean, that's El their problem. El Elton Brand just you know went, went in on his kink and. Yeah. And, and, and tied up everybody, and here we are. Uh, to finish off on the defense, so the Heat, the Bulls, and the Sixers are all first in the league with 46 steals. Sixers have played one less game than the other two. Damn. The Clippers have 45 steals. They've played two more games than the Sixers. I think the Clippers were the other team that we would have looked at as being like the elite defense of the league. Right. Granted, they don't have PG yet, but still, two more games, one less steal overall. Uh, and I don't have it here, but the Heat are the only team that are ahead of us in steals plus blocks because I think they have, like, eight more blocks than us. But, again, they have a game in hand. Yeah. So it's up there. Uh, we are second in defensive rebounding percentage and third in offensive rebounding percentage. Again, size. They are dominating the boards. We saw that significantly in that Minnesota game. I have it here. Uh, they out-rebounded them by 22 total. 16 to 6 on offense, 40 to 28 on defense. And we talked about James Ennis specifically, like yeah. being an absolute monster on the offensive glass. It's funny that you bring up those stats right now, too, because when I was watching the game and seeing Ennis getting six offensive rebounds, I was like, one of the things that drove us nuts last year was it just seemed like every ball that the other team was shooting had like a long bounce off the rim and they always got the offensive rebound, like, or they got the offensive rebound. We, rebounding besides Embiid was always an issue. It's like, like, damn, where was Ennis last year with all this rebounding? And that was like one of the things that drew. a little bit. I mean, it's not like he's done it this whole season either. Like, he just picks these yeah. games where he just goes off, find, finds his matchups. I don't know. It's and I fine. think he was uh, like one away from his career high in rebounds. But anyway, like, but it was nice. Like, again, you know, having this size, these guys, it really addressed the need of last year as far as rebounding goes. So that's Good sample we have so far. So I have two quick things I want to touch on before we take a break, and then we'll come back with our interview uh, with Lou and Kirk here from Flying Fish Brewing. But one, so we talked about this upcoming road trip. So the games that NBA is going to miss, Portland and Phoenix. So Portland, you know who's on Portland now? Who? Hassan Whiteside. Oh, man. So I had a tweet that I'm really <laughs> upset. I didn't think it got enough attention, so I'm going to talk about it here so that I can get some attention because I'm thirsty for it. We all know that Embiid has dominated Whiteside. He's been another guy to just talk shit to. A lot to. of real estate. A lot of real estate there. So I just had this thought that imagine you're Hassan Whiteside. And this, the whole time you're thinking, shit, like my sixth game of the year, Embiid's going to come here and beat my ass. And then Embiid gets suspended. You don't have to play him. And every other year so far of Embiid's career, he doesn't play. And every center's like, I'm going to eat. But Hassan Whiteside now gets to go, oh, man, and B's not going to play. I get to take on their backup center. Who's their backup center? And it's Al Horford. <laughs> Shit don't get any easier. Nope. Doesn't get any easier. You hate to see it. You hate to see it. Hell, I, he, he ain't going to get his way at Kyle O'Quinn. No, absolutely no. not. So it's just it's insane how things change. Hell, hell maybe they're uh, – we're in garbage time. We see Norvell Pell put a couple up against them. Maybe. 
Uh, my last thing was I, a couple of people had, had asked if we were going to talk about this. I, I kid you not, people actually engaging. Weird. The Mike Scott Flagrant 2 from Monday got changed to a Flagrant 1. What were your thoughts watching that? Okay, I'm probably being a homer. So be it. This I is a homer even, podcast. I didn't even think that that was a Flagrant 1. It's not. There, there's no way. And it wasn't like... Um, who did he push into? I don't even fucking know. I don't, yeah, some scrub on Boston, but like Atlanta or Atlanta. But I, it wasn't like he fell and tumbled or like took no. a nasty fall or. Dude, it like was, when two dudes, like when two bros, are like, "Yeah, bro, what's up?" and they like bump chests together. Like yeah. he did that, but the other dude bailed. There was did, more contact in a in a chest bump of two bros right, than there. Right. Yeah. Because the other dude bailed. Like there, he was just like, "Oh, like you're doing this to me? Like, okay." There like was if, there if, was nothing that was worthy of even a flagrant one, let alone a flagrant two. Yeah. All right. So, uh, what worst case they give him a slap on the wrist and they call it a, a technical, which is still, in my opinion, pushing it. That's actually a great point because of the fact that he like kind of like just like broed him out and yeah. like, maybe even like. Was like you, even if you called it a taunt, which it wasn't. Like that's actually a really good point. Like if they called it a technical, I might have just like laughed and been like, ah, okay, whatever. Because yeah. like, and that would honestly just be almost even more influenced by Mike Scott's just attitude and his overall "I'm not a bitch" feeling. Yeah. <laughs> but like, man, I, I was I was irrationally angry about it. I'm did I am glad that they went back and looked at it and changed it to a one. I don't know if they can take it more than one level that was the, the question yeah. that I, I was asking myself is how far can they rescind it so at least they did something but like that was a fucking travesty yeah i mean if, if again if he took a bad bump then i say it but nope the no dude bump. didn't even sell it yeah. like do you remember no last, last year was it uh i don't even know it was last year two years ago but the thing where donovan mitchell threw and beat through and beat down where he basically like hit him like this and a beat toppled the fuck over like I don't even think that was called a flagrant. I think that was called like a common foul, or he, I think Mitchell yeah. might have got a technical after the common foul. He fell down. Mike Scott bumped this dude, and he just like walked about on his business. Was like, oh yeah, he fouled me. And then they were like, you're out of here. Like, what? Is there? Yeah. I, I know you play to win the game, play to win the game, that whole thing. But like, at some point, something that egregious, doesn't the other guy have to be like, yo, like, he didn't fucking flagrant to me. It was egregious. Egregious. <laughs> I don't know. I I wanted to talk about it. I I don't think it's homerism. I think I, I think anybody looks at and I and a I not Sixers fan looks at that play and is like that's fucking. Bullshit. There's a small part of me too that wants to believe that they only gave MB two games because they're like ah we we made a really bad call, Mike no, Scott. No, but. don't don't tie that together. There's nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, it was it was bad, but. All right, well, we're going to take a uh, quick break. We will come back with the interview with Lou and Kirk here from Flying Fish Brewing. And then uh, we have some time. I, I got a couple other other quick hits, but we are uh, we are running a little long here. And I, I also need to go get some more beers. So we will uh, be right back. All right, so we are back here on Process Potables, and we are joined by Lou and Kirk here from Flying Fish Brewery. Lou, Kirk, thank you guys so much for having us. It's been an awesome time so far. Enjoying the beers, enjoying the environment here. You guys got a bunch of stuff going on. It, it's starting to pick up in here. Uh, we, we tried to get in before the rush because we don't like to, to be a bother or anything, but uh, it's really starting to fill in here. So thanks for having us. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks very much for stopping by. Uh, Friday afternoons always start off a little bit slower, but as people start letting out for the weekend, starting to enjoy their uh, 
their weekend festivities. Hopefully they get to start here and uh, experience some of our many beers that we have on tap. I'm very happy to have started here. I don't Absolutely. know about you guys, but very happy to have started here. Um, so, Lewis, are you, can you tell us you know, what, what you do here at Flying Fish? Yeah, technically my role here, uh, the title is president, but honestly, I just try to make sure everybody that works here has enough resources to uh, sell more beer day to day and, and feel good about coming in here and being innovative about the beers that we're offering to people. Uh, I joined the organization just coming up on two years ago. I've had some experience within the industry. I uh, worked for Yingling for about eight years, oh, wow. two yeah. years in sales, six years in marketing. I worked for Oscar Blues as the national sales manager for four years. and was presented with the opportunity to join here two years ago. Uh, and I, I, of course, I knew the beers. I grew up in the Pennsylvania area and I knew how solid everything was. So honestly, over the last uh, 24 months, we focused on innovation and sales and marketing and if you followed our brewery at all you probably noticed we've really changed our labels uh, we've offered more and different uh, compelling styles absolutely for the consumer populace at large and I was fortunate enough to, to hire Kirk here uh, it was a year ago in May I guess so you're you've been here about Come, a year yeah, and a half coming up on our anniversary yeah look at you <laughs> Uh, and he Kirk's, has not bought me any gifts, though. N no gifts yet. <laughs> Buddy, uh, you work at a brewery. I think you've got a goddamn good gift going right now. The, the, very true. Uh, very intuitive. But uh, Kirk's come on board and re-energized uh, re and revitalized our sales force and our relationship with our wholesalers. It's an interesting industry because I think often people forget we don't sell beer other than here in the tasting room directly to consumer. Our beer goes from here to a wholesaler network, and then the wholesalers sell that beer to retail where you get to enjoy it in your bars or at your beer distributor or at your grocery store. Um, so there's that first customer in our world is vitally important to our business and Kirk is the, the front line to uh, make it sure they're on board with everything that we're doing. Yeah, see, you got it good. You didn't even have to tell what you did. He just did all the work for you. <laughs> Uh, the reason why I'm here is just to make him look good. So uh, I just follow in his, his footsteps. I'm glad you talked about innovation because we go to a lot of breweries and, and a lot of them are much smaller than this. A lot of them are, are a lot newer than this. And I mean, so I'm 31 now. I have to, I don't remember anymore sometimes. Thank you for the thumbs up. Math, math is hard. But I would say we probably got all of us together kind of got into drinking more craft beer not buying you know $18 30 bricks like maybe like 25 or so I would say sounds about right give or take let's just let's just call it that it's not important when it actually was but we all grew up in this area and like flying fish was was even around then like flying fish has been around and I've, I've only been here a handful of times. Like It's kind of hidden back behind the town center, which is a little tough. And it like is. you said, you, you said you've only been here for, I think, two years coming up on two years or two years. That like my impression when I started to get into the craft beer world was I'd go to the store and I, and I didn't know anything because I didn't really have friends that were into it either. I was just kind of learning by guessing and, and picking things and finding out if I liked them. And my early experiences with Flying Fish were like, yeah, like what I've had from them is good. But these all kind of look the same. It's like this is an IPA, and this is a, a, a pale ale, right. and this is a, a red ale. And it's like there are there are nuances. And as I got more into beer, you know, maybe I learned to appreciate those more. But I'm sitting here today, and I'm drinking a caramel espresso porter. I'm drinking a fried ice cream stout. I'll, I'll tell you that what has really brought me kind of back to Flying Fish is the Salt and Sea. 
Um, right. I absolutely love that beer. We're, we're a big sour podcast. We're big. We're big sour guys. Like, so when you say that, like, it's great because you know we like we want everybody to be successful and we want to have all the beer we can get and all the varieties and it's nice to see that like everyone's kind of taking that step and everybody's not just making an ipa and a double ipa like you guys have all of that still we and do. i'm sure some of those are flag are flagships but like you know I, the first two beers i had were a fried ice cream sound a caramel says a porter and they're both incredible like that's the type of thing that at this point in my experience with beer gets me coming back because I've had everything else. I kind of know what I like for the most part, and it kind of takes those outliers and those experiments and those fun, unique experiences to really make me want to go time and time again and experience it. Yeah, Dan, I, re- I really appreciate you saying that, and I'll kick this off and I'll turn it over to Kirk. Um, you really pretty much captured everything that we think about every day. And sometimes not only our waking hours, but also when we're asleep, believe it or not. (laughs) Um, This is a 23-year-old brewery. Uh, Gene Mueller founded this brewery in 1996. Before he even physically had the four walls of the brewery here, he founded it online. Now, 1996, you got to go all the way back to the days of dial-up and AOL. So all of us throwing AOL free trial CDs at each other and getting welts and cuts. (laughs) Exactly. But he was smart enough to realize that it could be a marketing uh, mechanism to really communicate with the consumer. So before he had physical brick and mortar, uh, he was basically using the Internet to engage consumers about what styles uh, they might be interested in, what names they might like. And from that, all this came to be. Now, how do you reinvent or reinvigorate a brand that's been around for 23 years? It's all of the things that you mentioned. And and honestly, I'm an old school beer guy. I've I've been in the beer industry since I was 16 years old on the retail side. I'm 45 now. So guys like Kirk coming into the organization and, and really pushing the boundaries of what we've traditionally done. Fried ice cream. Uh, We make an Irish potato candy stout. Um, you know, the coffee espresso porter really, uh, Kirk pushed uh, the brewing team to make. and uh, they, they answered the bell, so to speak. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what you see going on out there in the world and why you felt it was so important for us to do the same. Yeah, so one of the reasons why uh, I was so excited to come here as an opportunity so I, I previously worked in uh, the largest wholesaler in New Jersey, Kramer Beverage, about a, I don't know what they are now, but Originally, they were around 12 million cases, so substantial in terms of size. And I managed craft and uh, specialty import brands. One of those brands was Flying Fish. And I always felt that Flying Fish had such a great name recognition, brand equity. But since we've been around for a long time, back in the 90s, the biggest styles that people were in preference were English and Belgian. Unfortunately, uh, consumers have kind of fallen out of favor in those flavors and varieties. So uh, it's not necessarily the most original idea, but certainly looking to the market and what customers want and changing our portfolio mix to suit the customer's needs was one of the dominant forces. Uh, it's, it's really exciting to be able to work with a team here that is unbridled to do any kind of new innovation that they want. Uh, the addition of Lou adding a canning line here has been incredible in terms of our growth and velocity. A lot of those brands have come into that format or even the 16 ounce four pack format has been our kind of our experimental. So we've gotten a lot of new trial into a brand that's been long standing. 
there's a lot of breweries that exist today that are in decline. A lot. And it's hard for them to grasp how to change because they've always done it one way or another. For good or for worse, Lou and I did not start the brewery. So we just look at a great place with great people and want to escalate that and return to a place of growth, which we've done. And it's very exciting. Uh, we have a lot of new innovation coming forward for 2020. So this is all the, the tip of the iceberg, but we have a great team that's able to execute a lot of these ideas that we collaborate on to, to move forward. So. so I'm curious because I think what's awesome about um, craft beer and a lot of people may not even realize it is that the beauty behind it is that th these are small businesses and let's face it most of the you know people quit their you know accountant day job because they want to you know they learn how to craft brew their own beer that they think's great and they depend you know on uh how good their beer is to draw customers on so and, and i'm i don't have a business background at all but i could see where people have that you know dream and like oh i just want to have my own beer and brewery but like you guys uh, pointed to earlier, a lot of people, you know, people may not have that, you know, marketing experience or getting the name out there. And it seems like that's definitely not a problem here. So can you just talk to like, is that something that kind of attracted you guys here? And is that like we're, Kirk, like you said about some breweries decline, is it because they know how to make that one great product when it comes to all other business asset aspects of it? That's, you know. Well, okay. So. I'll approach this from the macro and then dial it to the micro. So macro would be just business in general. The businesses that exist and are consistently innovating and growing with the marketplace are always going to succeed. Those that continue to do the same exact business that they always had and their consumer asks and needs and solutions have changed and you haven't adapted to that, that's where you come into struggles and decline. Uh, for us, uh, we, we are not uh, absent from challenges as well. Uh, we've, we've created so much innovation and so much growth that it's been struggle to either keep up with demand when we first launched our 15-pack variety cans, uh, as well as just consistently uh, TTB approvals, getting the right cans printed on time, all those things kind of structure with this, this nice growth level that we've had. Uh, but going into the micro, I came from a homebrewing background before I ever came to Kramer Beverage, which is my wholesale life. And then here as a supplier, most guys have the same exact experience that I had. I love beer, so let me try to make beer. Then you make beer, then you get drunk on your own beer, and you go, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> and your friends get drunk on your beer, and they're like, this is amazing. You should do this as a company. <laughs> the problem is, is that as experimental and creative that is when you're first starting out on a very small system, you know, you're talking about five gallons or 15-gallon system, is that you don't have any of the process or scientific backgrounds. The one thing that we have here, uh, apart from a uh, full-time lab with uh, biologists, microbiologists, and our testing equipment, is all of our uh, brewers, some form or fashion, have gone to school to get degrees in varying forms of uh, chemistry or biology. Oh, wow. Those things are so integral to be success for consistency, but also it is a living product. It's very much like milk. It has an expiration. So there's there's a lot that goes into it apart from just let's make really good beer that people like. There's, there's so much more to make sure that it's a safe quality product that people will enjoy consistently for a long period of time. And, uh, you know, it, it's just... It's not easy to just jump into the fields uh, unless you start at a much smaller brewery that's looking for somebody to wash kegs. Then you can kind of work up your way in the ranks and then learn it on the job. 
But uh, for a brewery of our size, we need people who are professionals uh, with scientific backgrounds. I think the other important point to make uh, is perspective. Um, we advertised for a long time prior to Kirk and I joining the organization that we were the largest brewery in New Jersey. Um, we make around 20,000 barrels of beer a year, which by a lot of brewery standards is a lot of beer. Uh, but by and large, if you look at the perspective of where I used to work or where I came from, I mean, when I left Yingling, we were 3.2 million barrels of yes. beer. <laughs> you know, Oscar Blues with their acquisitions and so forth, we were pushing 400,000 barrels of beer. We're only 20,000 barrels of beer here. There's only 32 people that work at our company in totality. And a lot of those people, six specifically, work part-time in the tasting room. Um, we only have 13 people that brew the beer and make the beer in totality, and that's it. Wow. Uh, so I think when you, you break it down to that level and let people know that there's really only a handful of folks that really touch the product that we're so proud of and that we're putting out there for people to enjoy, they're surprised because they, the perception is flying fish is much bigger than that. The, the other thing that's kind of exciting about us, because we're so... Uh, small is is not a negative. It allows us to be flexible and nimble. Now we can't make a new beer every single week because we have system constraints. However, we still can play in the every other month something new, special, and unique, which uh, even for breweries our size can be challenging to do in and out kind of projects. So, so little little bit unrelated, but since our friends baby decided to scream, how do you feel about babies being at breweries? <laughs> Well, listen, we're a pretty family-friendly place. Uh, yeah, yeah, you got to say that. To I take know, a tour, okay. to take a tour, you got to be 21. But if you look around here, you look at all the board games and everything we have. Uh, I have a daughter who now, believe it or not, my our youngest is 12 years old, and uh, we had a killer game of Battleship here not too long ago. So uh, we welcome all all families in here, babies and otherwise. No, yeah, it's great. I just want I just wanted to give give them some shit. And, and I notice you don't have Monopoly, so that's good. Like, well, my only horror story is I won't mention the brewery, but you, I think you were there, right? When I got mm-hmm. nailed in the knee with a skee ball. Yep. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was fun. Kid just sidearmed it and never so, even made it up the ramp. So I, I've actually done this kind of conversation before, uh, and it's really funny because the people who are polarizing usually have negative experiences with whatever the kids are in there. I think it really just establishes the right type of parental guidance to, to corral your kids. Sure. I, I have a year and a half and a three-year-old. They come here all the time, and there's never issues because I'm watching them. You know, If you want to come here and just allow your kids to run around, then that's, that's your decision, but still... That, that can impact other people's experience right. in a tap room. So that's just how you specifically uh, are corralling your kiddos. You know? Sure. So, Ooh, wait, whose kid was screaming? Cause, oh, that's our okay. friend. All right, because yeah, I was going to say, you're niece. clearly throwing She's somebody under the bus. Yeah, 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 that was the whole point, yeah. <laughs> I, I know you guys got to give the PC answer regardless, but you did it well. Um, <laughs> to that point, in, in a real sense, so I know that, like having a lot of friends that have had to deal with this and whatnot, and in our experiences, obviously having been to several breweries, I always like to get an idea on the complications of, and I don't know how much you can or want to talk about it, but the way that New Jersey handles breweries as opposed to other states, because you go over in the Pennsylvania and they can serve food, oh, they can political. have sports on, they can do all these things, and New Jersey, there's been a lot of 
you know, clashing between whether you can do this, you can do that, you can have live sports on, you can have TVs. And now there was a, like an amendment where you can have a certain number of live events, you have a certain number of food trucks, of things happening. Like, like, you know, what is what do you think is like a fair kind of balance for that, or, or what are the complications? And how do you adapt as a business to overcome regulations like that? Sure, it's a really good question, and and I will preface it by se- the answer by saying that uh, our founder again, Gene has done more to advocate for breweries in this state than anybody else because he's been there kind of since the beginning of the craft beer revolution, so to speak. Um, I guess the way that we look at it overall is the tasting room in New Jersey was meant to be a place where people could come in, engage your employees and your people, talk about your beer, taste your beer, and have a one-to-one conversation with the people that are making decisions as to what is coming next. Not dissimilar from what I mentioned previously when Gene was online, if you think about it, on AOL, having those same discussions. It's, again, I'm a PA resident, so it took me a little while to understand the nuances and differences here in the state of New Jersey. When you go to a PA brewery, there's food, uh, there might be outside alcohol alcohol from Pennsylvania, but uh, it's a very different experience there versus here. as you referenced, Dan, some of the laws have changed or some of the interpretation of the laws have changed. You now look around our tasting room here and we have four TVs versus the that. two that we used to have. We have the, the largest allowable TV by law, which is 65 oh. inches on the far wall from okay. where we're sitting, which looks tiny based, based on the size of that wall. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're, we're right. Exactly. We're, we're stretching the limits, right? But I'll no, just we're not. stand here and watch TV. Exactly. <laughs> so I guess in our world, uh, we had talked about it a little bit earlier. We still, we still sell beer in only four states primarily, and we just entered a fifth. So it's PA, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland. Those are kind of the legacy states. And we just recently entered West Virginia. So the majority of our focus of our sales of our beer are outside of these brewery walls. Wow. Uh, And we look at this space very much as a marketing tool. And as you pointed out before, we're a little off the beaten path, so to speak. Summerdale's a very small town. Uh, We're tucked in off the main road that goes through the town. Uh, We welcome people here all the time and we try to do activation to bring people here. But we view this space not so much as a bar, but as a place where people can experience who we are experience our beers, get a little bit of our culture, and hopefully buy our beers uh, outside where, wherever they enjoy beer, uh, whether it's at a sporting event or in a backyard barbecue or just at a gathering with a bunch of friends. So that's a great way to put it. So this is ba- it's almost like, you know, like surveying market research rather than considering it like a bar. Exactly. It's how you have to look at yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it depends on what your business model is, right? You've been to many different types of breweries and some breweries prefer to be more of a taproom environment and that's a different business model than what we operate in we really try to be outside these four walls that doesn't mean that we're not excited about the legislative changes because it's allowed us to have a fish olympics which was a giant 80 person team uh outside all these events like super fun during the summer which would not have existed without legislative change so uh, we embrace those things, but also as stewards of being one of the larger ones, we, we try not to skirt or upset legislation. We try sure. to just go with it. But embracing it, we never were allowed food here, minus some food trucks. Uh, having food here is integral for people yeah. just to 
and it's all prepackaged snacks. But that stuff is huge for if people want to enjoy themselves and enjoy responsibly. That's a, that's important. So yeah. see, I I got a great idea because I didn't realize I was talking to a president. Today. Oh, this is gonna be great. And I know the word resources is a fancy way of saying money, but if you pay me, <laughs> my mom always wanted me to go to law school. If you pay for my law school, I'll become a craft beer lobbyist for you. Well, we'll talk after the pod. Buddy, but I just want to throw Resources can yeah. be draft picks. They can be assets. They can be a lot of things. It's not a just lot money. Of they could be beer. I like that a lot. And, and craft it's beer lobbyists. We share, we share more in common than you would even know because uh, I went to I went to college at Penn State for administration of justice. And for a long time, I was going to go to law school. And my parents initially were like, you're just going to stay in beer? That's not what we'd be paid for. But <laughs> right? uh, in my case, it seems to have worked out on, on the beer side of things a little bit. But law I feel school- like he just said, suck it, mom and dad, like, <laughs> yeah. real subtly. That's not true. There's, Everything's been real subtle on that Bruce side of the couch. Uh, and then you they got the two most yeah. blunt jerks in the world over here. <laughs> uh, so- no, I appreciate that. Uh, so, so going from you know what you can and can't do, and, and it sounds like you guys have made the most of what has been expanded for you, which is awesome, yeah. and and it, and it shows here because obviously people hearing this. I mean, we did do a little bit of a live stream prior, but for people who are just hearing this, I mean, you can hear the noise. This place is packed. There's bago in here. The TVs are up. Like people are hanging out. Like that's the thing that that we love about going to places like this, and why we feel like we get a better experience doing this. You know, when we started, we were going to the stores and buying the beer from, you know, the distributors putting it there and going back to my basement and going, hey, this is the podcast and we're drinking this beer. And it's like, that's cool. We're still showcasing it. But now we get to be here. We get to get a feel for the environment. We get It's hard to tell people over the air, hey, this beer tastes good. You should try it. Now we get to come here and be like, we're in the building. Like, you can come here and get this fantastic beer and you can also experience what they have to offer. So, like, that's the part that I like about it. So leading into that, you know, do you guys have anything coming up? Like you mentioned, you do th- this Olympic thing. I'm sure that that probably passed because that seems like a ba- seems like a bad time of year to be doing that kind of thing now. But do you guys have anything coming up that people could look forward to if they were interested in coming and checking the place out? Is there something specific they could pencil in to maybe come see? We do. We always have some uh, special beer releases. We're actually surrounded by some barrels where we're sitting right now. We are. Uh, Dad's had even barrels. Gimmick, even gimmicked one of the table here. Exactly. Um, we'll do some, we, we release a beer uh, typically the day after Thanksgiving, so Black Friday, while people are out shopping and doing what they do. Uh, if you're not into that sort of thing, or, or even if you are into that sort of thing and need some need liquid encouragement, uh, we release a beer typically on that Friday uh, called Fishing with Dad. Wow. Those, those barrels around us are filled with uh, blueberry braggot. And they're aged in dad's, dad's hat barrels. What is Braggot? Blueberry Braggot. Braggot is a specific style of beer. So you've heard of a mead, yes. which would be like a honey-based brew. Uh, Braggot is part honey-based and part ale, regular okay. fermented beer. Um, so Blueberry Braggot is in those barrels, and we release it um, that Friday after Thanksgiving. And fishing with dad has become a popular thing for people to okay. come and buy. Is that, is that bottled or is that on tap? Uh, we do bottles of it primarily to go, and then every once in a while we'll put a, a sixthal on. It'll be on a sixthal that Friday. Okay. But by and large, might be back. Yeah, by and large, uh, <laughs> by and large, the holidays are, are a fun time for people to stop in and and 
you know, bring friends here, bring family here, uh, have a small holiday party here, so to speak. So we don't do any uh, specific programming until after the holidays. Uh, you, you mentioned that there's Bago here, and we'll have a cornhole league going on uh, in the winter time inside, where we'll put a, a couple of different a couple of different lanes will be set up and have a little bit of a tournament in the season, and declare a winner at the end of about a six to eight week season. Okay. And in, in terms of uh, another beer, big brand that's going to come out for us, it's going to start getting staged really in December, so our customers will be able to try it here, and in some limited markets will be Hazy Bones. So uh, 6.3% New England-style IPA, core from us, six-pack 12-ounce, and draft. So that is a big, big launch for us in 2020, but it really gets launched uh, a little bit seeded in December. Uh, so we're we're very excited about that brand. It has really cool sugar skulls on it, and uh, the brand itself is just really uh, tropical fruit forward IPA. Okay, I'm uh, I'm drinking the New England you have on now. What was this one called? Stormy skies. Stormy skies. So what what would be the difference between this That's, and that? It's a great question. So uh, it it's kind of a uh, blending of a lot of different beers that we make. We make this beer called Go Birds, which is a hazy, juicy pale ale. We also make the Stormy Skies, which is a nice New England-style IPA. We also make Jersey Juice, which is another New England IPA. It's kind of a blend of all those three flavors, but the big two paramounts are uh, tropical fruit, so we're thinking grapefruit, pineapple, a little bit of mango, papaya, okay, uh, and, and that haze and juice, which hazy New England, for those that don't know what that actually connotates to, it's meaning super super flavor and aroma and reduced bitterness so the bitterness level of that beer is dramatically reduced to just make it more drinkable uh, but it is still an IPA uh, so it has that hops and dry hopping that most people look for uh, as well as the mouthfeel and texture that they're looking for from those unfiltered IPAs yeah. and one of the other differences between stormy skies and hazy bones would be alcohol content so for some people it's important to have more than just one uh, Hazy Bones is going to roll out about 6.3%. That Stormy Skies is 8.3%. So there's a yeah, little that makes bit of a, sense. There's a little bit of a difference in there. <laughs> Not going to say I can tell, but I can tell. <laughs> you haven't even had the other one yet. No, but I'm saying I can tell this is eight. <laughs> Don't yell at me, Jeez. that beer, the beer that you tried. Oh shit, you're right. That beer you tried is uh, it's, it has an interesting story the way it got its name and the way it came to be. Uh, we had a gentleman Please. that worked on our production line. He primarily worked on our keg line, so literally filled kegs all day long of all the different beers that we make. And uh, his name is Mike Jadick, and Mike uh, was not a brewer here at the time, but he entered a homebrew competition in the state of New Jersey. And uh, they disqualified him because they found out that he worked here at Flying Fish even though he wasn't a brewer. We tried his recipe and we tried his beer that he had been brewing as a home brewer at home and decided that, that the beer was good enough uh, that we needed to make it and, and produce it and put it in cans and put it out there to the world. So that beer almost didn't come to be. And the reason it's named Stormy Skies is the, the legend goes, uh, uh, apparently every time Mike would brew this beer in his garage, the, uh, the heavens would let loose and he would just have a major storm. So it just came to be naturally stormy skies because his wife would be like, what are you making? I'm making that beer that has a storm every time I make it. So stormy skies. Rainmaker, baby. I can relate yeah, to that. Stormy skies. Well, thanks, uh, Mike. I, I, I really enjoyed it. So great job. So, cool. So, uh, so he's a brewer now? He has become a brewer. Since that time, awesome. uh, 
It's um, like Kirk said, man. You start cleaning kegs and, and you start brewing beer. Yeah. That's exactly right. He had aspirations to become a brewer. And uh, one of our brewers uh, also has aspirations of running a brewery uh, from soup to nuts production-wise one day and decided to come off the brew deck and start to be our packaging lead so he could learn that side of the business, which opened up a spot, gave an opportunity for two of our other brewers to move up the ladder, so to speak, and for Mike to slide over from uh, keg filler to the brew house. So Awesome. Yeah, wow. it's very cool. Growth from within, much like the Sixers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah true. Ideally. Um, anything else you guys have, want to plug, want to talk about, anything? No, just really appreciate you guys coming here. Uh, I guess the only other thing that we'll throw out there, Kirk mentioned Hazy Bones is coming in December, and on a prior conversation, he talked a little bit about our variety pack, reintroducing people to our beers. Our variety pack is going to have a whole new lineup by the end of the year as well. There's five beers in there currently. Three are going to be totally brand new. Uh, so please look in, look for it wherever you buy beer, and if you can't find it, go on flyingfish.com. Under the beer section, we have a beer finder. So nice. you can sit on your couch and find exactly where you can find flying fish before you get up to go shop. Yeah, and if you want to know what we think about them, make sure to follow us on Untapped at Process Potables. We'll tag everything we drank here. We'll check in here, so if you need to find the place, you'll find it on there. I'm going to delete that. every review that's bad, though. <laughs> Just administration. Oh, oh, that's, that's not good. Ne- never, never from us. We we know how to, we know how to play the game. We we know a little bit about our marketing and and research too. So we sure. we know what to do to uh you know to make sure we keep the connection strong. Oh, you're good guys. So. I, I'm I'm happy you guys came out. And honestly, we we do appreciate honest feedback. We we take Untapped as a direct consumer source to kind of guide some directions. It's funny. One of the beers we made, Trade Winds. Uh, it's a tropical wheat beer, which is actually going to be a that's summer what, seasonal for us this year. Next. So, so good. It tastes like Hawaiian punch. It's got passion for guava. Oh, we had no idea that that beer was performing so well until an online beer, uh, it's basically like a... Uh, it's a beer retailer yeah, like out a, of Oregon. Right. They hit us up and said, it's a top 10 nationally trending beer. And we were like, uh, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Thank you for telling us. Uh, we already knew that. Right. So uh, it's... It's really great for customer feedback because it does guide some of our decisions in the future. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for having us. We appreciate it very much. So far, can't say enough about how tremendous the beers have been. Have been. Christ, I suck at this. (laughs) I'm going to go get another one. Thank you for having us. Deal. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it, too. All right, so we're back, and thanks to Lou and Kirk from Flying Fish for having us. That interview was tremendous. So far, it sounds like, from all accounts, probably the best interview we've had with anybody in the entire history of this podcast, which probably isn't saying much considering how shitty of a job we generally do, but <laughs> I think it speaks volumes to the credibility of Lou and Kirk. So Everyone's really going to awesome. enjoy it, yeah. Uh, we have surprise guests now joining us, getting to hang out with us today. Uh, like we've mentioned, Process Pill is part of the Underground Philly Sports Network, and we're joined by Kyle and Herb. Guys... Thanks for hopping What's going on. on, boys. What's going on, nowhere. fellas? I mean, you guys can't put yourselves down like that. I mean, you guys have had some great interviews. Uh, that was a great one. Yes, it was one of my favorites, but some great ones up until now. No, you got to be self-deprecating. That's how it works. <laughs> that's how we oh, no, That's no. how you are able to brag later. Uh, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. We already talked about it, but now that we have some fresh blood, the hottest topic is obviously the brawl. From Wednesday night between we're all Embiid peacemakers and out here. We're all peacemakers. I plugged the shirt. I don't think you were here yet, but I plugged the shirt. There we go. You guys can find it at Design Tree. 
Underground Sports Philly's got the Peacemaker shirt. We've got the NWO, BWO style Carl Anthony Tapped (laughs) shirt. Make sure that you're checking that out. And big shout to Design Tree for hooking all of us up. But you know what? You know what was what was the energy for you guys seeing that kind of thing? Are you the type of people that are all about it? It hypes you up. You're here for it, or are you on the side of like this isn't good for the sport? These guys, you know, and B needs to stay on the court. Yada yada yada. Well, I mean, you not, can tell by my tone where I stand. So maybe it's a leading question. But we can all agree we're not boomers here. So uh, I was Correct. I was all about it. I was on Twitter and uh, I see it going down. I flipped to the game, and uh, I was like, "All right, he's putting Carl Anthony Towns in his place, and uh, Ben Simmons just put him in an old school choke out, and then Embiid's you know making fun of the uh, the Timberwolves when they visited the Rocky Steps, shadow boxing like they were. I thought it was great. You know, it's what the NBA needs, and you know. He's controversial, but Stephen A. Smith said it the best. He said he would rather have guys with that Russell Westbrook kind of mentality, not liking anybody, having these kind of rivalries, than it being plain, boring NBA. And, you know, people are overreacting to the fight thing because, look, the Sixers are going on a four-game road trip out west, typically when they rest and beat anyway. So he was probably not going to play in two of these games to begin with. Granted, now it's going to be too straight, so Brett probably doesn't have the flexibility he wanted to rest him in certain games, but he was going to get rested at least one, if not two, of these games anyway. So it's just built-in load management, quote-unquote. You know, going back to what you said earlier, and I think the fights kind of overshadow this, but Minnesota sports teams need to just stop visiting the Rockies. Yeah, that was going to be my next thing. Can we please just tell – They'll never learn. I mean, they hate doing it great, but (laughs) – I I, I was saying that I think I should start – like, you know, they have, like, fans of Philly. Like, I'm going to start a group, like, a company where all I do is set up tours for visiting teams. I'm going to take them out drinking the night before, and then we're going to do a morning fun run up the Rocky Steps the day of the game they play. You would think Robert Covington would have told them that, you know, this yeah, is not right. the thing to do. Um, but, you know, hey, it happened, and, you know, it was a big win for the Sixers, and they were still at, you know, that game also kind of proved what they were still able to do without Embiid. You saw it against... Uh, I believe it was the Hawks. Detroit. Embiid didn't play. Detroit. Or Detroit. And, uh, you know, it's just another test to kind of see what this lineup's able to do when Embiid's not in, and it gives you a better look at Al Horford at multiple positions. It gives you a better look at all these guys. So I was fine with it. You know, get yeah. the crowd riled up. I and, think he was uh, always sitting that Phoenix game anyway. I think that's a great point that you made. He was going to sit one of them anyway. It's league-mandated load management. It's not a big <laughs> exactly. deal. And, uh, Plus, it saves cap space now, apparently. <laughs> yeah, so. apparently. Yeah, was it like ninety thousand, like a game or something crazy I like think that? Yeah. Two hundred thousand or something. I love the uh, the tweet where somebody said Tobias has to square up next, save us even more money. Uh, <laughs> you know, that'd be fantastic. So, I also thought it was hilarious that Al Horford was kind of just like that disappointed dad on the side. Yeah, and uh, he said it. Just yep. waiting, <laughs> waiting for the whole thing to end, and you know, he's just gonna go ground Joel and Ben. But he I wasn't also mad. Th- he was disappointed. I also thought it was, you know, kind of cool to see Ben go up to Joel after and say, you know, I got your back. Where this whole nonsense controversy of and that's Ben and Joel nobody's talking about that Ben and Joel don't like each other. Ben's out there defending his guy that allegedly he doesn't like, and then to also, you know, tie it all up and, and bring Jimmy Butler into it with the social media aspect was absolutely flawless. Jimmy talking about it. Uh, last night with the Heat game and everything, I thought was hilarious. And uh, Embiid, you know, he said it. He owns Carl Anthony Towns, and he does it on social media, and he does it on the court. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about after our break, so I'll be interested because this is something everyone's always aware of, to a lesser degree for Tobias, but obviously for Ben, so I guess we'll start there. 
I pulled up through four games of this season the shot chart for Ben Simmons because there's all this talk about the offseason with his jumper and he shoots a three against some bullshit China team and so on and so forth. And so far, everyone's been clamoring for the three in the Wolves game when they're up and he's still out there. The game's well in hand. Sixers fans started turning in the Flyers fans yelling, shoot on every possession, <laughs> which pissed me off oh. beyond beyond all mm-hmm. means. And I'm losing my shit after I was having a great night and enjoying the game. But what struck me looking at this is that he only has six shots total that aren't in the paint specifically. Three basically from the foul line into the paint and three from the right side, basically kind of like if you, you know, I'd say about, I guess it's about 12 to 16 feet. He's 0 for 6 on shots outside of the paint. And even inside the paint, he's shooting 61.7%, which when you're 6'10 and you get a lot of the looks he does, kind of feel like even that number should be higher. I, I mentioned this today on Twitter to a couple of people that so far, albeit a small sample size, Giannis Antetokounmpo is shooting, I believe it was like 14.8% on three and a half attempts from three a game. And I said, everyone has said, oh, it's just about Ben shooting it. It doesn't really matter that much if it goes in. My first question is, if Ben was shooting three and a half threes a game at 15%, do you think everybody in Philly would be saying, it's okay because he's shooting them? I think you'd have a no. certain faction of fans saying that, but for the most part, people would be like, all right, now he's got to make them. You know, there were these videos over the summer that he was making these shots and everything. I'm fine, though. It's it's four games into the season. These numbers are going to look a little wonky to start anyway. They'll even out uh, across the board, but, you know, I don't think Ben's going to take a three this year, to be honest with you. Uh, I just don't think he feels it's necessary like he's gonna wait until he thinks it's necessary to actually do it uh you know he pandered to the crowd during the preseason when he shot the one three at the buzzer and everything but you know with with his three I'm not worried about it if he does everything else right Ben's still an all-star caliber player he's a high quality player for this team and he's gonna get shit done and that's what you want from your point guard you want him to be able to kind of just control the game and if he's not shooting a three fine but if he's making 70 percent of his free throws if he's doing all the other little things right i can live with that i mean let's be real for one second philly fans could come out and i mean the halftime crowd or like halftime show could miss one of their half court shots by accident and they'd get pissed <laughs> off at that oh if the dunk squad misses if the, one if the dunk squad we're fucks up, i mean dunk. let's be real they're gonna get pissed off so like obviously they're gonna be upset that ben's not taking five threes a game and shooting 15 percent but let's be real. What's helping this team at this point? Is he going to put more points up in the paint, or is he going to put points up from the outside? He's getting it done by the paint, and that's what we need to happen, and that's what he's doing, and I'm not really concerned about that three average. You know, I agree, and my I've always been of the opinion of I don't care about the three-point shot at all, whether it comes or not, but through four games, he is shooting 44% from the free-throw line. I would much rather him work on that free throw percentage because if, let's say, he is able to get to a point where he can get between 70 to 80% free throws, like, in a way, he's getting three points when he goes to I mean, the 70 is going to be a gift from God. I yeah, would like, never even talk about 70 to 80. Yeah, 70 is absolutely I'll take 70. Uh, I think that would be acceptable. But, and, you know, shooting, you know, free throws, that's like, 
of anything you can do with your shot, that's the easiest thing to work on. I mean, on. it's called a free throw. Yeah, like literally. Don't overthink can... it. So whereas... Old white people basically <laughs> said it was free. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot harder than people realize. So whether you're a catch-and-shoot guy from beyond the arc or creating your own three, like th- that's really hard to do in a game versus a bunch of Instagram videos. But a free throw is a free throw. I, that's what I want to say. I think that would add so much more value with him going to the basket because with how poor he is from the line it's like okay he's only getting two points exactly and he's attacking the basket primarily like he's running through the lane to either dunk or you know finish close to the basket so if he can draw fouls and then finish a three-point play or get two free throws that's far more valuable than him just chucking up a three and hoping it goes in yeah yeah I mean so before I get to my next point on this lastly what I'll say is He's 29 of 47 inside the paint through four games. That means he's basically getting 12 attempts at the rim per game. It's pretty goddamn good. Like, I'll take that. If he was getting denied those attempts, there would be a different conversation to have. But if he's getting 12 of his field goal attempts at the rim, basically, and then we still know he's getting to the line, we still know even now he's like a 55 to 60% free throw shooter, which isn't the worst we've ever seen. A couple percentage points more, I think we'll all be content. I mean, he's no Shaq. Right, like, exactly. This man's not coming up yeah, to the line. He's not DeAndre Jordan. Right. <laughs> the point that I wanted to make on this shot chart specifically is that my argument has always been not about the three, but about that elbow jumper. Teams defend him at the free throw line. We saw last year and even the year before in the playoffs, specifically with the Celtics, where they would literally have two guys waiting for him at the free throw line so he couldn't split them he couldn't go around him he could not drive through because they knew that at that point the offense would stall it would have to reset and then they would set up their half court defense I just want to see more in this section where it says 0 for 3 0 for 3 I just want to see more there a couple of makes shoot 30% in there not even from 3 fuck taking 3's if you're going to have a 15% chance to make it it's a bad shot it doesn't help the offense just for you to take it that's been my argument against Giannis his entire career. He gets better, he gets better, but if he's going to shoot 15% from three, then I'm going to play off of him, and he's going to struggle. I know it's four games. He's only averaging 23 points a game. Giannis, last year's MVP, 23 points a game. That's not going to get it done for them, and their record shows it. I'm sure that'll change. I'm not saying that's going to be a constant, but all I need is these 0 for threes to turn into 2 for 6, 3 for 9. That's all I need. I think if we get that, that Ben Simmons is literally like at, like back end of the MVP conversation, easily second team All-NBA consideration, and he's already pretty much a given for an All-Star, but he locks that down completely. Yeah, I know some people say that the mid-range jump shot's kind of a lost art in today's NBA. Like People always refer to like guys like Rip Hamilton, who back in the day was always automatic. But, man, if, if defenses, if that's what they're giving Ben, you know, take it and make it, man. Like, make him pay. Because if he has that and, it could, you know, making it from free throw, like, he's going to be unstoppable inside the three-point line. And like we said, we said earlier in the podcast that they're third in the league in offensive rebounding percentage. If Ben takes that shot, you have Al Horford, Joel Embiid, and Tobias Harris to get offensive rebounds on it. I don't even give a shit if he makes it. Just put it in play. Put it up there for one of those guys to make a play on it if you don't make it. The odds are that more often than not, we might actually get that based on our size and our skill in that in that specific thing. And I think a lot of people are clamoring for Ben to take these threes because this team doesn't have 
that J.J. Redick sharpshooter anymore. Tobias sure. has struggled with his three-pointers to start the season, which he needs to pick it up for what he's getting paid and what he's here to do. Like They're depending on him to make those threes. And because there's not really anybody off the bench that can consistently just come in cold and make threes, so everybody's turning to Ben Simmons knowing that you know, on that one attempt, he made it, and they want him to continue to develop his game. But you, you can't force it. And this team, you know, down the line, once it gets to, you know, buyout time and, and trade deadline, you know, time frame, they're going to go get some sort of sharpshooter, in my opinion. Because, you know, we talked about this on, on the Underground Sports Philadelphia podcast uh, on, on Wednesday. You know, you can argue that spots 10 to 15 on this roster – one or more of those guys will not be here come the trade deadline. Yeah, I agree with that. The other thing I wanted to point on, out on here is this Tobias Harris one, and this doesn't require as, as deep a conversation, I think, nor much – I don't think there's going to be as much discrepancy. My only concern here is that basically if you look around the three-point arc, he's shooting less than league average everywhere except staring straight at the front of the yeah. net, which is weird because I feel like that's generally – other than like James Harden – that's a pretty difficult shot for more guys. They generally prefer the corners. He's one for six in the corners so far to this point. And the majority of his shots have come from this left angle where he's two for nine. Like, I really think that he's like he's got to figure something out with that corner three. Like, just talking about three-point shooting as a whole is a very mixed bag kind of thing, which is why I wanted to look this up. And so, based around the fact that you have already Horford and Bean and Simmons a lot of time out there with him, we're all going to occupy that paint area. I think that you're generally going to either find him in those corners or in that straightaway section, albeit small sample size, but he clearly seems to have the straightaway. We know for his career, he's generally been a good three-point shooter. I'm really going to be interested, I'm going to try and look this up, to figure out his career, the corners versus the angles. If memory serves me correct, I've seen it before where it, as a clipper, he thrived in those corners. Oh, which is what concerns me now that it's not clicking here. And I know you know from articles I've written and us talking about on the podcast before that I brought it up time and time again regarding Tobias Harris that in his time as a sixer since the trade, you know, we keep talking small sample size, but that was at least like two months as opposed to three games or what have you, that he shot like 32% in his time as a sixer after like 41% in his time as a clipper. We said earlier on the podcast, he's sitting at about 35% right now four games into the season. We hope that's a sign of improvement, being that it's better than his time here last year. But at some point, like, I hate to be the, he got the contract guy, but at some point when you get that money, like, you've got to figure this out. And if I'm deciding which one of these I'm more concerned with, Ben shot selection and making or Tobias shot selection and making, it's Tobias by a fucking mountain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it seemed like last year, right, like, those corners, like, that, that was JJ's sweet spot. Um, well, J.J. shot on the angles, not the corners. Yeah, and, and I wonder if part of it, too, could be w- with the offense, with Embiid, and maybe, you know, again, like you said, it's a small sample size. It's still early. But hopefully when there's more cohesion on the offensive end, that's a shot that definitely develops. It's funny bringing this, um, uh, you know, the the the, jump, the graphic here because I've noticed that it seemed like the only threes – Toby has hit were from, you know, dead center in a way. So it'd be nice for him to add that to his game. So hopefully with time, offense gets more familiar with each other. That's something that uh, develops. Well, maybe Tobias will pick up a book and uh, read about how to shoot from these corners because this has become 
the narrative about Tobias Harris since the trade almost, since March of last season. He has been incredibly inconsistent with shooting the three. We've seen it early on this year, and it's something I've noticed. Whenever he goes to take a three, he kind of takes that hesitant step forward and then kind of settles in to take his shot. He's just got to be in the mindset of, let me just drill this. Like, he's overthinking shooting the three or shooting from deep, and that's what's costing him a lot of his, you know, production because I think he's just overthinking his shot selection, and if he gets that out of his head, I think we'll see more of Clippers Tobias Harris that Elton Brand traded for than what we've seen in almost his entire Sixers tenure. So hopefully that improves because that's something I've noticed early on, and you don't want that from a guy who right now on this team is your essentially designated three-point go-to guy. Agreed. Maybe we need to get the shot chart made into a bookmark for all those <laughs> books he reads. Something he's looking at every so, day. So he can take responsibility for that, yeah. So the last thing I can think – so it's funny that you mentioned about the hesitation in a shot because I agree completely. And we talked earlier about Matisse Seibel, and Brett Brown has been very, very vocal – in talking about Matisse's like willingness to shoot, so obviously he's praising the rookie, and and obviously I think his intent there is to encourage Matisse to continue that. Do you think there could be anything to the fact that he's publicly making it like over and over again apparent that he is encouraging Matisse's aggressiveness in shooting? That that also could be a nod to Tobias and his hesitancy to shoot, like. Hey, like I encourage this. I, I encourage all my players to do this. Like I want you to shoot. I want you to know when to shoot. Like maybe it's kind of meant to get under his skin as well. I don't know about that. I think because when you're a rookie, I think having that kind of public, you know, support for that, I think that's way more important. Where Tobias, he's been in the league for a long time now. Great he's point. a veteran. I think they're, they're that's something. That's something they'll be able to pull him aside and give him that kind of constructive criticism, right? I think Tobias, he's obviously got to probably be able to take that very well and in stride. So I'm not worried about that. Yeah, I think it's more praise for Matisse than anything else because Feibel coming into the season was a guy that a lot of people were like, all right, how, where is he going to fit in You know, this season? How many minutes is he going to play? Uh, you know, There was the, the debate whether you know who's going to play more, Zaire, or Matisse Thibel, and right now I think they're doing the right thing with Zaire, having him play at well, you know, down in Delaware. But uh, you know, Matisse has has proven he is this quality player that they drafted. I think he's a key component to this team, and his willingness to shoot is, you know, a, a huge positive for this team early on. And he's making clutch, you know, shots. He's playing incredible defense. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's still leading the league in uh, in steals. If not, he's at the top. And uh, yeah, he's, he's been he's been as advertised, if not better, because coming out of Washington, you know, a lot of people were skeptical about his shooting because he did kind of take a step back uh, with all the guys that they had at Washington. So I, I think Matisse has been fantastic, and that's what I view it as more is Brett just kind of praising a guy who is performing at or above expectations. I agree with that too. I, I think that's what it is. I'm not I'm not saying that that's my thought. The only thing I'll say to counter that, I think everything you said is a great point, but as much as I would agree that you know Tobias can take that and those are conversations that they may have, you do sometimes have to be careful with guys who are making that kind of money, guys that have been around a while, and especially when you're a new coach to them. Like, Tobias isn't somebody that has that relationship with Brett. He's still pretty new here. So while that may not be his intent, 
there is like a subconscious idea that like just putting those things out there can can maybe get into a guy's head who's thinking those things, even if that's not necessarily your intent, nor if it is necessarily directed at them. That like there's 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 just so many levels to it that, and I think Brett's a, a pretty sharp guy to know that you know maybe there's there's a reason to put that out there beyond just the face value of it. Right. Imagine imagine you're coming out of college. We're still I'm still in college actually. Super young. I mean, I have a coach bring me in and tell me to shoot less. I'm freaking out. I'm Oh yeah. I'm for sure. contemplating every shot I take. I'm contemplating every move I make on the floor at that point. No, he's going to go up and he's going to hype his boys up on the media and he's going to let them know like Matisse is going to take shots and you guys got to be all right with it. And I mean, Matisse is now comfortable. He's comfortable on the floor. He's going to figure it out. I'm not worried at all about that. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, th- that's pretty much all I got. You guys have anything you want to bring to the table? You got anything you guys want to plug I, or anything? As we sit here right now, tweeted it out early this morning. Your Philadelphia 76ers only unbeaten team in the, the NBA. Only, Let it be known. Shout out to uh, undisputed. Shout out to the Clippers team. for uh, knocking, knocking the, Spurs the Spurs down. Off, baby. But uh, only undefeated team in the league, and they're they're playing like it, and and that's what you want to see. And this Western Conference road trip is going to be a big test. They're, you'll be able to see what they're able to do without Embiid for two games, you know, in different time zones. And uh, I think this is going to be that first kind of early season test for Brett and the guys on the squad to, uh, you know, see what this team is made of. I'm very excited for this road trip, even though uh, it's going to destroy my sleep schedule. Yeah. But uh, we love basketball in bed, and uh, I'm excited. So we it's going to be a blast. We're in bed, baby. We're the first team in NBA history. We can say that we won by submission, damn it. <laughs> I mean, we got to now take over-unders on how many fights Joel gets into this season. Ooh. I mean, what do we got? The uh, We got the Timberwolves for how many more games now coming down the line? I mean. Well, I did see sadly on Twitter, uh, the Sixers players are now 2-0 and in fights against Eagles fans. <laughs> yeah, it's a thousand percent. I mean, the over-unders no got to be pretty low. They'll You're not making too averages. much money. <laughs> We're the new Broad Street Bullies. Exactly. He's, Bully he's, he's going to be well-behaved for a little bit, just like when he said he yeah. wasn't going to talk trash. It lasted That's the real over-under. That's the real over-under to pay attention to. How many more trash-talking social media posts we actually get How from Joel this How many Instagrams do we see until he puts the word pussy back out there? I mean, <laughs> let's be real. <laughs> I'm definitely setting the over-under at pussies this season <laughs> at point five. Point five pussies. Point five, I'm yeah. taking the under. I think we have a couple weeks till our next pussy, but like it oh. might be a double pussy. Oh, oh man, the uh, the vaunted double pussy. I mean, I'll take the whole season on the next Ben Simmons pussy. I mean, <laughs> all right, Kyle Herb, thank you for coming and hanging out with us. Thank Absolutely. you for hopping on. We appreciate it again, Flying Fish. Thank you for having us. Uh, let me pull up my sheet here. Plug everybody again. You can find Flying Fish on Instagram and Twitter at Flying Fish Brew. You can find all things Underground Sports Philly at Underground PHI. And please follow us at Process Potables on Instagram, Twitter, and on Tapped. We'll uh, rate and review all the beers we had here. And uh, I always forget to fucking say this at the beginning anymore because I have it written down on my home computer. But we're never there because we're always out. Please hit us with that five-star rating. Write a review. Subscribe. The whole nine. And again, make sure if you're in the mood for... uh, some brand new t-shirts, go to Design Tree, look up Process Potables, look up Underground, Sports Philly. We got some sick shit out there. Use that hoodie season promo code. Don't be a coward. So don't be a coward. No cowards allowed. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I have no idea when the next episode is. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit drunk right now. Uh, 
<laughs> is that we got a whole other week? I got to do one before then. Wednesday, that's November thirteenth. I'll definitely do uh, one next week. Friends at, with uh, Eight and Sand. No, that's two weeks from now. We're definitely gonna have to do one before that. Oh, okay. All right, whatever. This is going too long. Let's <laughs> shut the fuck down. We're done. Hit the end, pal, music. <laughs>